You know, I thought since it's a new year, maybe we could start off with just a kind of a fun way. Maybe we'll start off with a little quiz to start the new year. It's a one-question quiz, so don't worry, not too hard. Um, here, go ahead and put this next slide up on the screen for me here. How many of you, and I, if, if you know the answer to this question, I want you to raise your hand, but don't say the answer. How many of you know what that symbol is? Okay, quite a few of you think you know what that symbol is. Good, 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 good. Um, so I'm guessing, I'm willing to bet that if we went around the room, some of you would say you'd probably give it the name a pound sign. Some of you might call it a, uh, a number sign. And maybe there's a, a younger crowd here this morning that might call it a hashtag. Uh, it, it's got lots of different names over the years. But let me tell you, the real name for this little symbol is an octothorpe. Now, be honest with me. How many of you can honestly say you knew that this was an octothorpe? I got three people right up here that can honestly say, and I don't doubt them, okay? Um, I, I got to be honest with you, I didn't know it was an octothorpe. I had never heard that word until this last week. But uh, this octothorpe, apparently they come up with a name because there's eight points around it. Octo means eight. And thorpe is apparently a, an old Norse word that means fields. And so this was literally eight fields is what that means. But anyways, over the last ten years or so, this has become a very popular symbol in our culture. Now, some of you may not realize that it has been, but it's become a very popular symbol, and it's become known as the name hashtag. That's kind of the more common name for it these days. And it became popular under that term hashtag by a company known as Twitter. Some of you have probably heard of Twitter. Uh, Twitter is one of these social media services. It kind of gives you, as a member of Twitter, it gives you the opportunity to sort of be uh, your own reporter. You can, you can say whatever you want to the whole world. They can all read it if they want, if they choose to follow you, so to speak. But the catch is, on Twitter, you only get 140 characters, 140 letters or spaces to say whatever it is you want to say. So that's not a whole lot of room, 140 characters. So if you've got a big, long story you want to tell, you've got some work to do to figure out how to say it in 140 characters. You've got to really kind of get rid of all the inconsequential stuff, get rid of some of the details. You've you got to really get to the heart of the matter if you want to say something in 140 characters. You know, I've got a friend at work, and she is notorious for telling excessively long stories. She gets way too caught up in the details. I mean, she's one of these people that when she starts telling the story, you almost let out this audible groan, oh, because you know you're going to be there for a while. And she's a friend, so she knows I'm actually talking about her this morning. But um, we kind of got to the point where we would kind of razz her about her storytelling, kind of give her a hard time. And, and we even got to the point where we would say when she would start a story, we would kind of interrupt her and say, hey, why don't you give me the Twitter version of it? And she actually, a few times, she said, okay, I'll be back. And she would go sit down, and she would sit there and start scribbling out her story, trying to get it to 140 characters or less, and she'd come back, and she would tell us our story, and we said, you should have started with that. Anybody know anybody like that? Just gets way carried away with her stories? Well, I tell you what, if you have been listening over the last several weeks, you've probably been hearing, this, hearing us talk around church here about this new sermon series we're starting today titled Hashtag the Bible. And the whole idea of this sermon series is that we're going to do just that. We're going to condense the Bible 
as small as we can possibly get it. And we're going to preach through the Bible in six weeks. Sounds a little overwhelming. We're going to preach through the Bible in six weeks. In fact, a little bit later in the service, I'm going to give you my Twitter version of the Bible. I'm going to condense the Bible down to 140 characters or less. Now, this got me to thinking as it comes communion time. It got me to thinking about, you know, if I were to give a communion meditation Twitter style, how would I do that? How would I tweet communion? And so I sat down on Friday and I started trying to write out a communion meditation in 140 characters or less. And of course, I'm telling you this after I've already been talking for, what, five, six minutes about communion. But here, I'm getting to the short part here. Um, I really had a hard time with it. Trying to say something important about communion, but in 140 characters or less, I kept going over 140, or, or I kept leaving out details that I thought were important, and I really struggled with it. But I tell you what, I did finally come up with something, and it is 140 characters exactly. But go ahead and put it up here. If I were to put communion in a Twitter post, this is what I would say. He loved you so much, he took the punishment you deserve. His blood was shed for you. Now the question is, how will you respond? On average, there are 50 of them sold every minute. There's 170,000 of them distributed every day. Just about everybody you know has at least one of them. They may not know where it is, but they have at least one of them. Year after year after year, it is the best-selling book in the world. But despite that, many people feel like it's something that they just don't understand. Some people think it's, it's archaic. It's too old, like it's full of, of these and thous and thines, and, and it just doesn't apply to today. Other people think that it's just too big and that there's no way that you can really understand or get anything from this unless you're an expert or some sort of a scholar. And there's other people who have a different sort of barrier to this book we call the Bible. Some people, I've got a, I remember talking with a friend, it's been several years ago, I talked with a friend and, and he was telling me that his mother was raised in the church she was raised around the Bible, but she had never read the Bible for herself. She was convinced that it was full of negative and, and critical hellfire brimstone type stuff. In fact, she called it the fire book. And she was afraid that if she ever opened the fire book up, that it might be just shoot flames of fire up at her. Took a little while there. I've been waiting all week to try this out, okay? I would have, like, walked off of here and cried if my Bible hadn't caught on fire, okay? It's not really a, uh, it's not really a Bible. I... Anyways, kind of fun, isn't it? I really have been looking forward to that for a while. But, you know, some people really look at the Bible. Here's the real Bible. Some people look at the Bible and they say, you know, it's just going to make me feel bad. It's going to make me feel guilty if I spend time in this, trying to read it and understand it. But I tell you what, if you've ever, if you've ever had any desire to understand the Bible, this series that we're starting today is for you. 
It's my hope that as we go throughout this series, uh, we're going to have something for everybody, whether you're a Bible scholar or whether you're sort of a Bible newbie. You know, I've been through Bible college. I've got a bachelor's degree in biblical literature, but as I've been putting this sermon series together, I've been learning a ton. And even if you know absolutely nothing about the Bible, this series that we're doing today is for you. And I've got some good news for you. Even though this book contains 66 different books within it and was written by 44 different authors across several different continents over thousands of years, this book is not meant to be understood as some massive collection of spiritual information. It's meant to be understood as one singular story. Start to finish. There is one story that exists throughout this book. I told you earlier that I was going to condense the Bible down to sort of my Twitter version of the Bible. I'm going to do that for you right now. And remember, Twitter, you only get 140 characters. I don't even need 140. I need 25 characters. Six words. This is my Twitter version of the Bible. God desires to be with us. That's the story of the Bible. God desires to be with us. And this, this story of God's desire to be with us, it's not, it's not your ordinary story. No, it's actually a love story. And I realize that by saying that, probably half of you dudes in the audience are checking out saying, oh, great, another chick flick. But I promise you, this isn't going to be a chick flick like something you watch on Netflix or, or the Hallmark Channel even. No, if you will hang with us throughout this series... We are going to tell you the story of the Bible through the lives of six different people you will find in the Bible. Because I firmly believe that if we can understand the story of those six people, we can understand the bigger story of the Bible. If we will just get their stories, we can get this story. And the story of God's desire to be with us, it starts off with probably the three most famous words in human history, in the beginning. And now, when the Bible says in the beginning, the Bible means in the beginning. I mean like before there was anything. There was nothing but God. We are in the beginning. And God began to create, and He created His galaxies with their stars, and their, their stars with their solar systems, and their solar systems with their planets. And on one particular little planet named Earth, thankfully, God created the most beautiful place you could ever imagine. He called it the Garden of Eden. And God didn't create the Garden of Eden just because He likes to create beautiful places. No, God created the Garden of Eden because it was intended to be home for His greatest creation, mankind. And we all know who the first Man was, right? His name was Adam. And the story of God's desire to be with us began just as God dreamed it would in the Garden of Eden. Now, I grew up thinking of the Garden of Eden as sort of a, a quaint little place, you know, maybe a little quaint tropical place, but, 
sort of a, the idea of a, of a hut at the end of a path. That was my view of the Garden of Eden. But i got to tell you, there's nothing quaint about the Garden of Eden. No, this place is huge. In fact, the Bible says that there was a river that flows through the Garden of Eden that was so big that it branched off into the four major rivers of the world. When you think of Garden of Eden, I want you to think like all of Yosemite National Park. I mean, thousands and thousands of acres of the most beautiful place imaginable. In fact, think of the most beautiful place you've ever seen and times that by a zillion, and you've probably got the Garden of Eden. And this is where our story begins. This is where our first character, Adam, calls home. It's paradise. In fact, if you were to send Adam a Christmas gift from Amazon.com, what you would put in the address line is paradise. I mean, there's no street, no zip code. It's simply paradise. Adam was in total harmony with nature in paradise. And now I realize that may sound a little granola, like maybe he was a tree-hugging hippie or something, but he wasn't. Nature at that time, it didn't cause any problems for Adam. There was no fear of hurricanes, no fear of tornadoes, no earthquakes, no fear of anything like tsunamis. In fact, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 6, we realize that Adam didn't even have to worry about the rain. It says, a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. You know what that means? That means that there weren't ever any picnics or ball games that got rained out. I mean, Adam is living in the dream environment. He's in the dream place. He was so in tune with nature, he had no fear of animals. Animals weren't afraid of him. God gave him the job of naming the animals, sort of like all the animals of the earth were his pets. In verse 19 of chapter 2, it says, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man. So Adam is one with his environment. He's got the dream environment. But it wasn't just a dream environment. He also had the dream job. And now, most of us tend to think of work as sort of a necessary evil, don't we? Most of us tend to think, you know, if life were perfect, we wouldn't even have to go to work. But the Bible's pretty clear that, that, that work wasn't intended to be a hassle. Work was intended to be something that was good. It was intended to be something that <clears throat> brought fulfillment. And Adam's job was to take care of the Garden of Eden. He was sort of a, a gardener, zookeeper, park ranger, all rolled into one. And he loved his job. The Bible says it was good. At the end of the day, he could come home from work and his wife could say to him, how was work today? And he could always respond, it was great. I love my job. There weren't any office politics to worry about. He didn't have to worry about uh, getting laid off. He didn't have to worry about putting in overtime or whether he was going to make enough to pay his bills. He never woke up on Monday morning and thought, why am I doing this? No, work was good. Adam had the dream job. So he had the dream environment. He had the dream job. But it gets even better. You see, Adam also had the dream relationship with people. 
And of course, I realize that at this point in the story, when I say people, I'm really referencing only one person. There was only one other person. Her name was Eve. But they had the dream relationship. The Bible says that when God introduced Adam to Eve, that he gave her the name woman. Now, there's lots of different speculation as to why he came up with the name woman. But many speculate that he he called her woman because the first time he laid eyes on her, he said, whoa, man. Hashtag corny preacher joke right there. But, I mean, everything that Adam was looking for in a woman, Eve had it going on. I mean, she was his dream girl, and they had the dream relationship. And I know they had the dream relationship because look what, look what it says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. It says, the man and his wife, Adam and Eve, were both naked and unashamed. They were naked, and and I realize that in most relationships, uh, those of you who are married, you can probably attest to this. In most relationships, it seems like there is one spouse who is kind of the modest individual, always likes to have some clothing on of some sort, and then there's the other spouse who always wanders around the house half naked. You're always afraid when company comes over because what are they going to be wearing, if anything, And this comment that they were both naked and unashamed isn't about having two people who like to wander around their hut naked. No, it has to do with the fact that they had nothing to hide from each other. They were completely open with one another. There was no fear of rejection, no wondering where they stood with each other. They were naked and unashamed. And that means that they had the dream relationship. So far, Adam's got the dream environment. He's got the dream job. He's got the dream relationship with people. But it goes even further. He also had a dream relationship with God. You see, in the Bible, it talks about how God, it's in Genesis chapter 3, God used to go on walks through the garden in the cool of the day. And the picture here is, is, is literally of Adam and Eve walking through the garden with God. And not the kind of walk like you're trying to get somewhere, but the kind of walk that you do just because you want to enjoy being in the presence of somebody. They were just hanging out with God, having conversation with God, being totally and fully connected with God. God was never distant. They never had to worry about God being angry with them or disappointed in them. God's stuff never made him feel guilty. Adam lived this untainted, unbroken relationship with God. Just like God always dreamed it would be. And that's the first part of the story of Adam. That's Adam part one, if you will. He had the dream environment the dream job, the dream relationships with people and God. And this is crucial to our understanding of the Bible because let me ask you this. Who who hasn't ever thought, if God is, is really love, if God is really good, if He's as good as everyone say he says He is, then why do bad things happen? How many of you have ever thought that? Maybe you've even asked that question. Maybe you've asked, you know, if God is so good and if God is so full of love, why didn't he create a world where there's no hunger, a world where there's no poverty, where there's no disease and no war? Why didn't God do that? 
And i got to tell you, the story of Adam, part one, gives us the answer to that question. And God's answer to that question is, I did. He says, I did create a world where there was no hunger, there was no poverty, no disease, no, no heartbreak, no war. That's the world that I created. In God's design, people never had to hurt. They never had to be hurt. People didn't get sick and die. God was always near. He was always clear in what He said. The story of Adam is that God is not the one to blame for this messed up world that we live in. And you need to know Adam part one because the truth is there's longings in each and every one of us. Longings to love. Longings to be loved. Longings maybe even to, to know God better. And do you know why you have those longings? It's because at one point in the history of man, your address was paradise. That's what God created you for. That's what God created us for. And the entire rest of this book is God working to bring us back into that dream that He created us for. But now for Adam, part two. You see, God's dream was about being with us and about us being with Him. And everything was going great at first. But then, everything kind of got turned upside down. You see, in all of Eden, there was only one thing that God ever said no to. Adam and Eve had all the yeses you could imagine, but there was one thing that God said no to. And that one thing, He said, don't eat from the fruit of a certain tree. Now, for whatever reason, we typically picture this fruit as an apple. We don't know if it was an apple. We don't know what it was. I like to think of it as something called a durian fruit. Anybody ever heard of a durian fruit? I wouldn't think so. These, oh, we got one back there who's heard of durian fruit. Durian fruit, these things, these, these are actually native to Southeast Asia. When I spent some time in Asia, I actually came across one of these things one time. But these are considered by far to be the most disgusting fruit known to mankind. They say that these things smell like a rotting corpse. I can testify to that. They really stink. In fact, in many Asian countries, these are actually outlawed in public places. They, are, they smell that bad. And I like to picture this fruit as a durian fruit. But we don't know if it was a durian fruit. We don't know if it was an apple. We don't know if it was a papaya. We don't know what it was. But the point is, there was one thing that God said no to. One thing and one thing only. Everything else He said yes to except for that one fruit. And now a lot of people wonder, well, why did God even put that tree in the garden if that was the only thing He was going to say no to? I mean, why? If, he's going to, if God's going to give us all these yeses, why would He even give us this one no? And there's lots of different thoughts as to why He did it, but I tend to think that God put it there because He wanted to give us choice. He wanted us to have a choice in the matter. You know, I remember when I was in, I think it was probably fifth grade, my mother sent a Valentine's gift to school for me on Valentine's Day. It had some balloons and a little basket of candy. And it had this little white fluffy teddy bear. 
And every time you'd squeeze the teddy bear's paw, he'd say, I love you. That's all he could say, though. He didn't do anything else. He didn't say anything else. He just squeezed his paw and he said, I love you. But let me ask you this. Do you think that, do you think that I wanted to start a relationship with that bear? Do you think I wanted to spend the rest of my life getting to, to know this bear at a deeper level? No, I didn't. I mean, it's not like the bear really loved me. He couldn't say anything else. He couldn't do anything else. He didn't have any choice in the matter. His creator created him to do one thing, and that was to say, I love you. And I can't help but think that God thought the same thing. If he gave us no other choice in the matter, is it true love? God wanted us to truly love him. And so he gave us a choice. And tragically, Adam and Eve chose to step outside of that love. They made the wrong choice. They chose to go the other way, to break their relationship with God, to step outside of this dream that He had created for them. And when they did, this dream that they were living, it became a nightmare. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it says, At that moment, it's talking about the moment that they ate the durian fruit or apple or whatever it was. The moment they ate that fruit, their eyes opened. And they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. How tragic is that? You've got a loving Father, Creator God, who created this incredible dream place and dream life for them. And they chose to turn away, to toss it all away. And so after that, God comes to take a walk with Adam. And Adam's doing something he's, he's never done before. Adam is hiding. And now he, he's not playing a fun little game of hide and seek. No, th there wasn't anything fun about this. And God says to Adam, he says, Adam, where are you? <clears throat> and Adam says, I, I, I heard you, so I hid. <clears throat> I was afraid because, because I was naked. And afraid here means ashamed. For the very first time, Adam felt shame. And God says to him, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten the fruit I commanded you not to eat? You see, the nightmare starts with hiding and shame. But it doesn't end there. It quickly turns to blame. Look who Adam blames. First, he, he blames his wife. Sound familiar, ladies? But he doesn't stop there. He takes us another step further and he begins to blame God. He says to God, he says, the woman that you gave me, the woman that you made, she's the one who made me do this. And, and, and Eve, well, she jumps on the bandwagon. She's like, whoa, it's not my fault. I didn't do it. She starts blaming too. She blames the serpent. She says, the devil made me do it. Shame and blame between people and God is the relational fallout of this nightmare. You see, instead of dealing with the poor choices and the sinful actions that, that Adam and Eve had made, instead of, instead of 
dealing with them in such a way that they felt like they were trusted and, and that they were loved and cared for. No, they treated God like He was somebody who couldn't be trusted. And with each other, they started passing the buck. They started stabbing each other in the back, and really it's been the same way ever since. A relational nightmare. But the nightmare didn't stop there. No, the, the environment gets messed up as well. And I don't mean just there's pollution in the world today. No, I mean from that point forward, we then have disease and catastrophe. We have those earthquakes, those hurricanes, those tornadoes, all those, those acts of God as we call them today. And their work, their work from that point forward was produced through toil and sweat. God says that the ground is not going to produce just food. Now it's going to also produce thorns and thistles. Their work became a burden. And worst of all, because they had opted out of the dream and, and bought into this nightmare, things were messed up with God. The guy that they used to go for long walks in the garden with is now the God that they hide from. He's the God that they, they blame and reject. And God basically says to him, okay, if that's how this relationship is going to work, you, you, you can't stay in my presence anymore. You can't stay in my, my dream that I created for you if that's how this is going to work. And so they were cast out of the Garden of Eden. But now if... If you have the tendency to see God casting Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden as, as though He was somehow less than committed to them, uh-uh. Don't even go there because, first of all, God tried to wake them up from their nightmare. I mean, think about what God says when He says, Where are you? Now, do you think that God all of a sudden really didn't know where Adam was? I mean, do you think that God all of a sudden somehow became less than all-knowing? Do you think God needed GPS to locate where Adam was? No, when God was saying, where are you? He wasn't, he wasn't saying, where are you physically? He was saying to Adam, where are you relationally? Where are you in your relationship with me? I want you to see what's really going on here. When God is calling out to Adam and Eve, he's pursuing them. He says, where are you? Because he wants Adam to know that he's blown it. He wants Adam to realize that he's living a nightmare because he has turned away from God. But Adam doesn't listen. He just hides. He points a finger. He goes into the cycle of shame and blame. And so they have to leave the garden. And they're forever forbidden from re-entering the garden. But I want you to know that God doesn't abandon them. He doesn't throw them to the curb and say, all right, you're on your own now. No, actually, it's kind of interesting. This one little point in the story, after God has cast them out of the Garden of Eden, He then comes to them, and we read that God made clothes for them. He didn't kick them to the curb and say, see you later. He's still looking out for them. And so why do we need to understand Adam, part two? 
I think there's two reasons. One reason is that the whole rest of the Bible is God working to get back into the lives of His people. From Genesis chapter 3 through the end of the Bible, cover to cover, start to finish, it is the story of God trying to get back into the lives of His people. And in your life today, in my life today, we need to understand Adam part two because on a daily basis, you and I, every one of us, we all do exactly what Adam did. We downplay God's commands. We somehow convince ourselves that our way is better, that we know better than Him. You see, our world is messed up. Our relationships are messed up. You may or may not like your job, but I doubt there's any of us here that can say that our job doesn't come with some sense of toil and sweat to it. Our lives are messed up. And the truth is, we can't fix these things on our own. And so God is calling out to us. He's saying, where are you? Where are you? And, and how's that going for you? How's it going for you in your relationship with your spouse? How's that going for you in your relationship with your family or your friends? How's that working for you in your work life? God is calling out to each and every one of us, and He's saying, where are you? And God didn't abandon Adam. He won't abandon you. God didn't give up on Adam, and He won't give up on you. God's going to keep pursuing us through the good times and the bad. He's going to keep calling out to you saying, where are you? God wants us to know that He's pursuing us because our lives are messed up and we can't fix them on our own. We need Him. And so what should we do? Well, I'll tell you what we shouldn't do. We shouldn't do what Adam did. He chose hiding. He chose shame and blame. And we all know exactly how that turned out for Adam. It brought us into this nightmare that we live in now called this world. But we have the benefit of, of thousands of years of, of text and history here. We have the benefit of knowing that God is pursuing us and He is striving with everything that is in Him to bring us back into that relationship with Him. You know, we spent all this time so far talking about Adam really in the first few pages of this Bible. But there's a reference to Adam in the last few pages of the Bible. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 21 and 22. It's Paul who's writing this. And Paul says, he says, everyone dies. 
And he's talking about how messed up this world is that we live in. He says, everyone dies because all of us are related to Adam, the first man. But it's the second part that I love. Get this. He says, but all who are related to Christ, the other man, will be given new life. Paul is saying to us, hey, we can choose here. We can choose to go on living in the nightmare that Adam created for us, or we can choose Christ. And the opportunity that we have to bring that dream back to reality, that dream that God has in store for us. This Bible is one continuous story start to finish. And I find it interesting that the most most frequent promise in this Bible is not, it's not God's promise of forgiveness. Although that promise exists and I'm glad it does. The most frequent promise in this Bible is not God's promise of eternal life or life after death. That does exist and I'm glad that it does. God's most frequent promise throughout this Bible is His promise to be with us. That's the story of the Bible. God's desire to be with us. And it's the greatest story ever told because God doesn't give up. You know, if you'll stick with us throughout this sermon series, you're going to see that just because Adam's story ended in a nightmare doesn't mean that your story has to end in a nightmare. You see, Christ enters the scene, and all of a sudden, this, this, this dream that God had for us becomes a possibility again, becomes reality again as God continues to pursue us. That's His story, His desire to be with us. Let's pray. Father, you are so incredible. There have been countless books written, countless sermons preached about just how amazing you are, about your love for us, about your endless pursuit to be with us, God. about you. And God, the gist of all that is that the gist is that you love us. You love us in a way that we could never fathom or imagine. And we thank you for that love. And God, it's my prayer this morning that as each one of us hear about your love for us and and your desire to be with us. That we will begin to seek out the dream that you have for us, God. That we will turn to the, the second Adam that you speak of, Jesus Christ. And that we will let him begin to restore his dream in us. 
Father, we love you so much. Your son's most precious and beautiful name that we pray. Amen.